from Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hello, hello out there in Radio Land. It is I from Studio A in Podcast Village. Time for the best political talk show you've never heard of with me in studio here at Podcast Village. I've got the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade, who served at last count under four presidents. He's the one we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And joining us from an undisclosed location in the Bay State of Massachusetts, he is the journalist and author of such awesome books as American Politics on the Rocks. He is Rich Rabino. Hello, Rich. Hello, Justin. Uh, we are, as always, fortunate to have our good friend, Rob the Engineer, behind the glass, keeping us honest. And Eric, our producer, uh, his father, who, who's a friend of mine, actually said we should start referring to him as Baba Bowie. I refuse to do that. <laughs> I refuse to do that, Eric. Anyway, there's a lot to get to. I mean, between just as we're walking into the studio to record this episode, there's all kinds of news. Uh, Trump administration pulling $155 million from FEMA emergency aid to ice and the wall on the same week that there's probably going to be a tropical storm, if not hurricane, hitting Puerto Rico again and Florida again. And on top of that, there was a federal judge who uh, overruled the Missouri abortion ban. All kinds of news happening. But the big, big news that has happened over the past four days that has literally consumed us uh, is the G7, uh, the meeting of the G7 in France over the uh, long weekend, if you will, uh, in in a st- in a statement and and the, the quotes out of France from the president are just epic. That and that's the only word I can use is just epic. Uh, according to the president, his takeaway from this year's G7 summit was quote unquote flawless. Unity. I mean, that kind of makes you feel warm and fuzzy a little bit, doesn't it, Alan? You know, a a very popular, famous book called The Exorcist (laughs) took place right here in In Washington, D.C. In Georgetown. In Georgetown, and there's a scene during the exorcism where a head spins on an, on an axis three, on a 360 multiple times. That's how I think the people, the other members of the G7, the press, and anybody in the world paying attention had to feel. It was just total head so you, spinning. And this, this, this is a way you, to characterize the president's comments where he'd be over here and then he'd pull a 180 and then come back to where he started so for you're a full saying, 360. So you're saying that there was not flawless unity at the G7? Well, well, <laughs> well, those spins were pretty flawless. I mean, it's not often. Usually it's sort of jerky and stuff. This was just like zoom, full 360. Uh, according also, he the president went on to say that if there was any word for this particular meeting of seven very important countries, it was unity. Uh, he also went along. We got along great. We got along great. That, that's that's just, you know, that's just epic quotes. Um, so many issues, Rich Rubino, but I, I, I want to tap on you for the historic side of this. Um, traditionally, the G7 has been uh, a meeting of the seven largest industrial economies in the world, and they get together annually 
when they do, it is more unified as far as the messaging goes uh, and to the point where they put out a end-of-conference communique that they all sign on to and agree to. This was the first year in, I believe, 40 years that they have not done that. Uh, how historical and how much is that a telltale sign of we're we're not in sync with our allies? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this go, you know, the, the G7 meeting go back to the Nixon administration, and generally speaking, if there's any disagreement, certainly the disagreement doesn't leave the table. I'm assuming uh, we don't necessarily hear about it, but usually there is some sort of there. There usually they are. I don't know if it's flawless unity, but there is a lot of unity between the um, between the between the nations. Basically, Russia was invited by the, the Clinton administration back in 1997. They were this is right after the, the Cold War. They were trying to show that there was some sort of unity between the United States and Russia. So Boris Yeltsin was president at the time, and they brought Russia in. Russia had been invited had been in there until the annexing of Crimea in 2014. Then Russia was essentially kicked out. Now Trump is saying that for 2009 for 2020 meeting, which will be hosted in the United States. That he wants Russia to that he's, he wants uh, President Putin, presuming he'll still be president, um, to to be in to to be at the 2020 right. meeting. But in terms of the actual in terms of the actual meeting, usually they have their, they release you some sort of a joint communique. Um, you know, it's all kind of it's a very rosy scenario. They talk about how they're going to work together in the future, and it's just it, I think Donald Trump, being the, the nationalist leader that he is, I think he's playing in many respects to his base in the United States, who, for example. You know they do not like multilateral agreements. They do not. They, they essentially think the United States should be should deal with everything. You know, should every right. unilaterally or I'm sorry, not bilateral. They don't like multilateral for trade agreements. For example, he's talking. He talked about agreement with Boris Johnson, the new prime minister of Great Britain, and he essentially said, "Well, we're going to have some right. sort of a bilateral trade agreement." So I think he's kind of he's basically playing to his base, and I think his base absolutely loves the fact that he is not right. going through the normal bipartisan um, foreign policy going back from essentially Nixon me, through Obama. Let me go to Alan. Alan Moore, um, keeping at the 30,000-foot level, and we'll dig into the, the individual items, is it, is it obvious to the rest of the, of the world that the G, it's now the G6 plus Trump that we've effectively alienated our seven best friends almost? Well, so, or are we overanalyzing that? Well, no, no, no. I, it, I mean, it's it's the G seven, but the notion that that everything was flawless is completely absurd and ridiculous. But this is not the first year that they have not come up with a substantive communique. They, I think, they came up with something the last two years. But ever since Trump has been president, um, it it has been highly disruptive. The president early on dropped out of the Paris. Uh, climate accord, and that was a very big deal because the other members of the of the G7 uh, have all been uh, true believers in that. Um, the other members, um, several of them, were actually part of the the uh, the agreement with Iran. Um, th- there's there's uh, there there are differences on North Korea. Now, usually they don't spend a lot of time talking about the areas of difference. They try to talk about the areas on which there's agreement, but those become fewer and fewer. The president has offended most of them. Um, now, he's also done this little 360 thing with, with some of them because he, he's buddies. Then he, then he offends them, 
And then he says they're buddies again. The French President Macron being a good example. They were great friends. It, then they then 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 he would ridicule Macron and talk about how weak Macron he was. And now they're, the, they're big buddies again. Did Macron? Did, did, did uh, French President Macron? Did he draw the short straw and have to be kind of Trump's handler? In this G7 meeting, because that's the appearance that some are saying that he he was kind of, I I heard two news outlets call him the Trump whisperer. Well, who would want to be the Trump whisperer, right? Um, (laughs) uh, On the one hand. On the other hand, everybody gets to be the Trump whisperer for a few moments here and there because the president has been on so many sides of most issues. So. Um, even Angela Merkel, who with with whom uh, the the president has a no has love. a high stra- highly strained relationship, um, will occasionally f- find something on which they'll agree at least for a few minutes until the president changes his mind again. Yeah. Um, so, but remember who the, these are industrial countries, but with with with. Uh, with demo- with their their democratic uh, governments, it's four countries in Europe: it's Canada, Japan, and the U.S. Um, I mean, it's the big it's the big four: Germany, France, uh, uh, UK, and Italy. Um, and, and of course, the, India the, was the, there. The UK seems to be moving um, uh, <laughs> out of uh, the EU. We'll see if this if, if Brexit occurs and on on, right. on what what circumstances. Other countries are invited in as observers. Um, and and that's why Brazil's there. And that's why Point India's there. there. But but uh, you know, and the president <clears throat> has said he wants to bring back Russia to make the G seven the G eight. But the the G seven, but Russia never really qualified in terms of the the the, the notion of of being a well, democracy well, and, a, and a free let's market. Let's talk about Russia so, for a second. Let's talk about Russia for a second, Richard Bino. The uh, the president made the comment several times during this conference saying that, uh, you know, Russia was pushed out at the behest of President Obama after, and I quote President Trump, uh, he was outdone by President Putin. And because President Obama was embarrassed, they pushed him out. Uh, The reality is it wasn't an American idea. It was a G7 idea to push out Russia after the illegal annexation of Crimea is is this is this a is this a big deal is this something that we need to focus on or is this a more short attention span theater that you know Russia should be a part of this they are one of the bigger economies and uh you know we, we shouldn't cry over spilt milk well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, first of all, in terms of the way Donald Trump was saying about how he thought that Obama was outgunned, does that mean that he thought that Obama should have done something, you know, militarily to to bring back the Crimea? I mean, is it really any of the Nobody United has States? that answer. Nobody has that what, answer. <laughs> I mean, is it the, I mean, is it the United States' business to go and invade? I mean, can you imagine that we could start a world war if I mean, if Obama wanted to if Obama didn't want to be outgunned by Putin, he could theoretically say, "Okay, and threaten military action to bring, I mean, and, and you get, and that, which raises the question, you know, um, why is it the U.S.'s business about, you know, a region in Crimea? Isn't that really between Russia and Crimea? But I actually think that there is a case for bringing Russia back just because, you know, they can make the same case for the United States, for example. You can make the case was the invasion of Iraq illegal, was, you know, you, if, you, if, you start playing, if you start playing this game, um, you know, it's a dangerous game because you can play that with just about every country that invades somebody outside of that invades some invades another country outside of their borders, but um, my get my get my guess is that if they brought that if they did bring 
Russia back. It would just go back to where it was before, and they would not necessarily bring up the Crimea thing. But, you know, with the person that Donald Trump keeps reminding me of is Don Imus. Um, <laughs> you know, How do you do Don Imus, it? <laughs> remember, he would, he what would a always... a slander on I, Imus. I was going to say, that is a blast from the past. We haven't heard that name, but please... Rich, yes. make the comparison. Well, here's the rhetoric. So Don Imus would he'd go after somebody, he'd call everybody names, and then the guy all of a sudden would come on to, would come on their show on his show, and then when he came on his show, he would essentially genuflect to him and give him a very good interview, and then he'd go back again a couple of days later, and then he'd go after the person again. I mean, he did this with you know Bill Clinton. He'd, he'd, he'd be going after Bill Clinton for just about everything. Then Bill Clinton would come on his show. This is back in '94, '95. And then all of a sudden, you know, he was going at. He, then all of a sudden, he was complimenting him again. It was like he couldn't really necessarily <laughs> pick an opinion for him. And this is exactly. I know Donald Trump was a Howard Stern fan, and he was always on the Howard Stern show. But I think Don Imus is really not necessarily an ideological soulmate, but a personality soulmate, because that's essentially how he made money for so many years was by just excoriating everybody. And then these politicians would then come on his show and he talked about how he talked about what a great how great they were doing, and then he'd go after him again. Hey, uh, Eric, I want you to flag that tape because I want the recording of Rich Rubino <laughs> saying comparing Donald Trump. To Don Imus and 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 pulling it off, by the way, pulling it off effectively. Yeah, uh, same names too. Yeah, it, it, it's true. That's... But at least it was comparing him to somebody alive rather than somebody from the 1920s, <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah. which is apt, which is appropriate. Uh, I will not compare him again to Warren G. Harding. No, we're good. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> that. That's why you're our our favorite historian. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit more about uh, some of the other factors. Uh, in this, the the Russia factor was obviously uh, obviously a very key factor, and it appears, Alan, that Trump's the only one in the G seven that believes that Russia should be added. Uh, we heard um, we heard uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau say Russia has yet to change it, the behavior that led to its expulsion in 2014 and therefore should not be allowed back into the G7. Uh, I go to you, being the international trade guy, are we, are we overreacting on that? Should Russia, as one of the big economies globally, be included in this little fraternity. Well, this was a political judgment that was made to try to, to uh, at the time, uh, improve Russian behavior. Russia doesn't qu- really qualify uh, on on any of the nor the, the the sort of the standard of being a of a, 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 a democracy. Is this a carrot and, and stick and, and, situation? And a, and a and an open market uh, system. China is way bigger than Russia, right. way more strong, and nobody's talking about bringing China into the G seven. Um, uh, India is a lot bigger. It's 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 probably it's more, more democratic than than Russia. It's just that it's it's uh, it's still uh, you know a less developed country because it is so massive. Right. Um, but but the, the the notion with Russia was it's it's right there next to Europe. The the European countries rely on it for for uh, for oil and natural gas and other resources, and it's just there in the neighborhood. Um, and if if Russia were in uh, in Asia somewhere, uh, I mean, it does cover seven time zones, I think. So it's it, it is in Asia on the, on the east side. Um, it 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 wasn't a good fit in the first place. 
Um, so, but and after Crimea, the notion is you're kind of you're kind of a of a junior member Russia. They wouldn't see themselves that way, right? Um, and when you start behaving badly, we're going to throw you out of this club. And Russia probably didn't care that much about being in the club until they were tossed out, at which point it was a matter of prestige, but not enough to make them have second thoughts about uh, annexation of Crimea. So it, it, one of the things that in a way surprises me as much as anything about the G7 at this point is why the president is even going and why he's participating. He does get to be the center of attention, of international attention. Um, he gets he he gets under the skin of, of these other folks, and for some reason, he enjoys doing that. But does does this help American foreign policy, American economic security policy, Richardino? I mean, does are there any indications that? Uh, going around and just thumping our chest, going MAGA, 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 is is in any way effective? I don't see how it would be effective. I mean, in terms of in terms of history, I guess you could make the case that in terms of Donald Trump making these bilateral deals that he can make for that he's going to make that he will make for with Japan, with Great Britain, that perhaps they would be better than being involved in some sort of a multilateral deal. And I guess that is some sort of that, I guess you could say, is his kind of view of, na- of nationalism. But no, I don't think that it necessarily, I, think, I don't necessarily think that it benefits them. If anything, it just makes the, it just makes every other country essentially almost trying to wait Trump out. I think they're waiting for some sort of a, for his successor who they think they could deal with uh, more, more amiably. I think that there's been talk, for example, that Joe Biden, that there were a lot of leaders from other countries that had come up to him when he, that, that had come up to him and said that, you know, we really want you to run. We want you to be president. So they're essentially waiting for him. Um, and if, you know, even if Donald Trump does get a second term and he's immediately he's still immediately a lame duck. And I, I just think that in terms of domestic consumption for other countries, he's so unpopular in every country, essentially, except for Israel. Uh, Donald Trump is so unpopular that it works for them domestically to actually have right. some sort somewhat of a hostile relationship. Right with the United States, because when they see the United States, they're not necessarily seeing, you know, 325 million people. They're seeing one person, Donald Trump, and they're seeing seeing Donald Trump, who they view as extremely unpopular and who's very unpopular in all their countries. So let's get down to some of the specific items that were of note. Uh, Number one, North Korea. Uh, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe made a proposal uh, that... uh, the G7 would declare that short-range ballistic missile tests by North Korea violate U.N. resolutions. Uh, Trump pretty much said, absolutely not, done. Uh, even though he went to a press conference and said Abe and him were on the same, Abe was irked by this, apparently. Uh, several media sources are reporting that Abe took this as, as, a, as a shun from somebody that he has been overtly supportive of and it was noticeable at his displeasure. Uh, however, Trump, because he's friends with everybody, Trump comes back and says that we're on the same page uh, and defended the missile test. The, the, um, the quote that we have is from the president regarding this, quote, we are in a world of missiles, folks, whether you like it or not. Uh that's all fine and good when you're the United States and you're surrounded by Mexico and Canada, but when you're Japan, when you're North Korea, Alan Moore, and you are literally 
within a couple hundred miles of a medium ballistic missile or a uh, medium uh, missile, medium range missile aimed at your backyard. Uh, was the president right to defend in order to keep the dialogue going with North Korea? Or was this just autocratic uh, appeasement? Well, what my take on this is this reminder of how challenging it is to deal with this president. Because one of the things about a G7 is there should be no surprises. So... If, and if, this was a big surprise. If if Abe says, "Can we em- embrace and endorse uh, this idea?" Typically, that has been pre-cleared by all of the the uh, the representatives of the G seven governments who meet ahead of time to talk about the agenda and to and to see if a communique of some kind is possible, no matter how watered down it might and, be. And let's be clear. There I just want to point out one thing. Be no surprise. Right. I want to point out one thing is and, and you bring up a good point is this is not a bunch of people sitting around a big horseshoe table and raising their hands going, Hey, I got an idea and pulling it out. This is a highly choreographed meeting of advanced placement of issues where there is large agreement, but then you get somebody like Trump that comes in and just throws a, a wrench into the whole thing. It's the way he operates in Washington. Yeah. It's the way he apparently operated when he was in business. Um, he even said when he was challenged or asked by press, you know, hey, you're sending this signal and then that single signal that's, that seems to be in conflict what you said early this, mor- this morning or yesterday. He says, that's who I am. That's how I deal. It, it, it heightens the, the international attention on this because it's what, what surprise does the American president have uh, for the rest of the G7? But it's a hard way to do business. I, I do want to say, though, notwithstanding all of that, on this question of – I'm the one who raised the question. I wouldn't have been surprised if the president said, yeah, I'm too busy. The president loves the stage. I think and I'm glad that he continues to go – even Why? though he doesn't seem to learn as much as we would have all hoped but by, watching, by watching the other members around the table, how they behave, what they talk about. Here's a guy with, with, with minimal prior experience in, in international affairs, in high levels of government, um, and, and the hope continues to be – that he's learning something. Supposedly this time, but isn't he, this was, more dangerous? he was doing more listening than normal. That press conference wasn't more I'm not talking. Well, that was his, his hour of just riffing <laughs> on more stuff. No, no, no. I, but, I, but if there's going to be a G7, I'd rather the U.S. is there than not there. Then, then send Pence. Then send no, no, no. Secretary you, Pompeo. You, you don't send a I, substitute. We, you don't. It's yeah. not an option. Steve Miller. No, 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 no. <laughs> he should be in a. He should be in a cage somewhere. Um, the, the reality, though, Rich Rubino, is that when we talk about, uh, for example, we talk about the Paris Accords. There was a meeting where all the G7 members were in the room talking about the Paris Accords, talking about global warming. It was more of a global warming than just the Paris Accords. President Trump says, yeah, 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 I'm going. He's a no-show. I mean, this is just another affront to another affront 
to our allies. How does the president justify blowing off that type of situation? I mean, that, that type of high-level meeting. That one was very perplexing because if you're not going to go to a meeting in the first place, you just say you're not going to go, and the meeting goes on without you. Um, it was complicated. I mean, I guess part of it is I think it's just Donald Trump's personality is that he's very erratic. Somebody tells him one thing, he immediately believes it. Then someone tells him something else, he immediately believes that. I don't think he's necessarily an ideologue per se as much as he's just somebody that just is that just you know he's very impulsive. And somebody says this, somebody says that. My guess is that. Somebody probably got to him, maybe Steve Miller, somebody from his, um, you know, somebody who represents the conservative base, the Donald Trump base, I guess you'd say, of the Republican Party and said, you know, if you don't go to this, if you don't go to this meeting, this is really going to help you with your base. This is perhaps going to help you with the fossil fuels industry. This is going to help you with um, this is this is going to help you really to garner up the, to garner your support because you're really going to be somebody who's going to say, you know, I'm not going to be part of this international coalition and I'm going to essentially come out and I'm going to say that. You know, I'm going to go. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to help. I'm going to. I'm going. Let's put it this way. He could. They could be saying. You know, this is going to help you specifically with the manufacturing sector. You know, you ran for president and said you're going to bring back manufacturing jobs. And your case against this was that the global was that climate change is essentially. And this is what Donald Trump said. It was a conspiracy by the Chinese to get rid of you to, to beat, beat the United States in manufacturing jobs. But I guess if somebody probably told that, and he said, "Well, that's what I promise." So this is going to help me with both my base, and this is going to help me with folks in the manufacturing sector because their jobs haven't necessarily come back. So I'm going to say, you know what? Screw this. I'm not going to be there because I'm going to be there to protect the American worker. I'm going to be there to protect the American conservative who does not believe in who does not believe climate change is anthropomorphic and who does not believe that the United States should be a party but, but Rich, to the I mean, international agreement. It, but here's the ironic part about this is, is that even, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alan, China and Russia are signatories on the Paris Accords. We're not. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Just about yeah. everybody is. Yeah, yeah right. most countries are. Right. But, you know, I, uh, Rich may be right. Uh, we don't know. Uh, but I'm reminded of the fact that very early in his presidency, or maybe in his candidacy, he said, hey, I'm unpredictable. I like to be unpredictable. <laughs> I want to be unpredictable. I want people to wonder exactly where I'm coming from. And he, that was that was a, a, a statement he made a long time ago, and he has lived up to it. So it it it, it may be that that I mean we we we've all heard multiple anecdotes about how he <laughs> kind of tends to go with the last person he talked to, but then there's always another person the next day and the next day after that. So he seems to swing widely. He doesn't have right. an ideological foundation that causes him to be consistent on, mm-hmm. on, on almost any issue you can name. He's been on vo- both sides of most things. Yeah. All right. That's the, uh, <clears throat> that's the magic music. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit of this, continuing talking about the G7, and we're also going to continue to lead into the G7 as it leads into the economic discussions in China and Iran. We'll be back in two minutes. This is Backroom Politics. Stay with us. I think of him, how much I love him. I get a desperate notion. That's the way I feel today. My heart is aching because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I feel today. Without any reason or a word to say, that man turned his keys in, he packed and went away. What good is living? I'll soon be giving my body up to the ocean. That's the way I feel today.
emotion That's the way I feel today My heart is aching Because he's making a plaything of my devotion That's the way I feel today From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. I'm Justin. I'm a political wonk. And in studio with me is Ellen Moore, Rich Rabino on the remote from the Bay State of Massachusetts. In the cage, we've got Rob the Engineer, Eric, our producer, and of course, our modest host, Charlie Bernie, the proprietor of said Podcast Village. Hey, uh, we're going to continue talking about the G7 and uh, all the happiness that came out of there. Uh, two big international fronts we got to talk about. Uh, Alan, let's talk about Iran. Uh, it, it was suggested that uh, Iran come to the G7 and at least have some, uh, how do you put this, hat in hand almost, uh, be willing to discuss possible options at making this better. Uh, how did that work out? Well, it's hard to know. It, 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 let me say, when I first heard that the foreign minister of Iran had come to France at the invitation of President uh, French President Macron, I thought, wait, what? And there was this sort of expression of, we didn't know that was coming from the American side. I thought, impossible. It, it or incredibly stupid uh, and and aggressive by President Macron. You don't surprise people. It's as I said before. Yes, these things are scripted. You don't have. If there's going to be surprises, they're going to come from the world leaders themselves right. who said something unpredictable, but, unexpected, uh, or one of the visitors. I mean, the, the the Brazilian president got got a little bit of news um, while while he was there. So. So it was it it was it was kind of a a hail mary pass to maybe get the U.S. Uh, but to, let me ask you to, this question to talk about in, improved engagement with Iran. Let me ask you this question: Could Macron have done that without the buy-in of at least a majority of the other G seven members? I don't think so, and I don't think he he could have done. He it couldn't without have done the, this sole source. I don't think so, and I don't think he could have done it without some buy-in from somebody on the U.S. side. Um, notwithstanding the, these claims of, oh, we didn't know it, we, it was a surprise, it just doesn't fit for me. I mean, we'll we'll. So what's the we'll, advantage we'll, we'll of, so, what, so what's the advantage of, let's say, again, going under the, the assumption or going under the understanding that this is a highly choreographed international meeting of high-level world powers, that this was, in fact, at least checked off by somebody high up in the United States government. Uh, why throw everybody under the bus, especially the one who's trying to keep the bond between our allies and us together, uh, French President Macron? Well, see, I don't, I don't, I didn't get the feeling that he was thrown under the bus in all of this. I got the sense that 
that which is why I think that that there was a, there was more advance notice to more parties than was originally than we got the uh, original impression. Um, and and that doesn't mean that the pre- that the world press knew or that right. everybody and every delegation knew. Um, but I, I would guess that 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 a, a core of countries, if not all the countries, were told privately, <laughs> confidentially, we're going to do this. And 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 from this, and here's really the key point: um, the the our president said that he would be willing to meet with President Rouhani of Iran, and supposedly President Rouhani has said the same thing. We'll see if that ever happens. President Rouhani came back today and said that he would, according to CNN, uh, he was quoted as saying that we will not meet until the U.S. lifts sanctions on Iran. So we're back to uh, a Polish gunfight. Well, fight. we don't know what where where we're back to. Um, it, it's it's a reminder of the conversations we have with North Korea. That is, we're not going to lift everything, right? But we might lift something. Something. Rich Rubino, yeah. does it make sense? I mean, we're obviously here in Washington taking a hard line on the Iran question. Uh, however, it has been hinted that Germany, France, Italy, even uh, Britain, uh, France might come together and say, look, before this gets out of hand, before you do something stupid, talk to us. We'll make the deal. We'll honor the deal if you do. And everybody stays face and there's less tension in the world. Does that make sense, and does that show a possible shift in foreign policy power, giving not I, I, I hate to call it the EU, but giving our European allies a collective voice that could be stronger than the U.S. in the region? Yeah, no, I definitely. Well, I I think that might be the effect of it, but I think that it's beneficial, certainly, for Donald Trump to do that. Um, there is just absolutely, after, after Iraq in 2003, the invasion and how unpopular that war is today, there is absolutely very little appetite except maybe some neoconservative um, the, uh, acad- academicians, for example, maybe someone like Bill Christ or something, for actually having a conflict with Iran right now. It's not in his interest. Conservatives, conservatism is not defined as kind of this hardline view of, for example, the George W. Bush administration of essentially not necessarily meeting with um, meeting with your adversaries. I remember in 2008 when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were debating and they asked the question, they said, my que- and somebody asked the question, would you meet with any adversary? And Hillary Clinton essentially said no. And Barack Obama said yes, and at the time, you know, he was seen as some radical leftist for making that case. But in Donald Trump's case, I mean, he's met with Kim Jong-un. Um, even if he does meet with the president of Iran, the president of Iran is not omni- omnipotent in terms of Iranian politics. It's the Ayatollah that really has a lot of the power. I mean, the president of Iran is almost like, is almost like the mayor of Worcester, Massachusetts. I mean, he has the power. <laughs> can, wait, 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 wait. I just want to make sure I got that correct. You, you literally, analogy, can, yes. yeah, you literally made the analogy that the that the president of Iran is equivalent <laughs> of the mayor of Worcester, Massachusetts. Okay, all right, continue. Yeah. Yes, well, <laughs> red flag that one, Eric. The, 
the mayor. There is, a, there, there, there is a majority view on that, which is in conflict with what Rich just said. But go yeah, ahead. But continue. continue. So the mayor, of, the mayor of Worcester, Massachusetts, he's a figurehead. People think of him as having more power than he does. But he's essentially a city council member, and they have a city manager that does that does that essentially runs the city. So he's basically a member. He, he's at all you know. He's at all the functions. In the case of the president of Iran, you know, he doesn't have the power to declare war. He can't even appoint judges. So he doesn't have a lot of power, but he's certainly a symbolic head. But, you know, in many respects, what he has to do, he has to get the approval of the Ayatollah, which is and the high command of the Iranian government. But that being said, he is a symbolic leader of Iran. And certainly when the economy, for example, um, when the economy falters, when there's inflation, it's the president, not the Ayatollah, that gets blamed for it. But that being said, I just think that for Donald Trump, I think that he needs to have, make some sort of an agreement here. I know that he promised during the election campaign that he was going to get rid of the Obama deal. Um, which, but that, but that being said, I don't think that electorally there is any benefit Rich. whatsoever to being in conflict with Iran right now, except for the neo the neo conservatives, and they're not the Republican right. base. Rich, I did not think that you could pull that analogy <laughs> off, but I think you actually <laughs> might have done a fairly good job at it. Uh, oh, thank you, Alan, thank you, Alan Moore. <laughs> uh, the the other big ticket item. I mean, other than the fact that. Uh, the Irani, the, the Iranian issue it continues to be just a flaming dumpster fire for our international policy. Uh, the other big one was China. Uh, while the G7 is happening, while they're trying to figure out how we can keep this strong economy going here in the United States and how that will parlay into global monetary happiness for the world, <clears throat> uh, lots of mixed messages coming out of Washington regarding what's happening with this whole China trade war. And, Alan, I think we can say, I know you've been hesitant in past shows to say that we are in a full-fledged trade war with China. Can you now say this is outright trade war with China. Oh, no question. I, okay. I, I haven't I, I haven't I haven't resisted that. Um, I mean the question is though what is what is an outright out and out full scale trade war? There aren't a lot of precedents, but well, we're we, going what, tariff for tariff what, what, now. What, what we've got now is tariff for tariff and we and then we've got our president with his a uh, 360-degree head-spinning commentary, where in 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 one of the meetings at the G7, of uh, some some press people said to him, "Do you have any regrets about the way you've proceeded with uh, with China?" And he said, "I have regrets about just about everything I do." Or second thoughts. No, second thoughts. Second thoughts. Right. Thank you. Second thoughts. Was it not regrets? Second thoughts um, about just about everything I do. And the, 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 the White House walked that back. Well, the immediate international reaction to that was, oh, he's wishing, he sounds like signaling that he he wishes he hadn't been as aggressive as he had in exactly the way he had. Four plus hours later, not instantaneously, because his own people, they don't know what he means when he says this stuff. It took that long to get some kind of clarification. And who knows what he meant when he said it, because he's a master at reinterpreting, um, uh, not the master that Bill Clinton was, obviously, but 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 a, but a different kind of a master where he says, 
either says, I never said that, and then there's 20 different different examples of him saying something, or in this case, he says, yeah, I, I'm, I'm having second thoughts about whether I wasn't tough enough. I right. should have been more aggressive sooner. And and he, Which, which he, by and, the way, happened on Friday, well, and, then another, and then it tanked the stock exactly. market. Well, then another point, he, he talked about, uh, he was trying to measure uh, who, who the enemies of the U.S. economy were, who was the bigger enemy, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, or President Xi. So he 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 was it was like a twofer for him. He he further distanced himself from from his own uh, uh, appointee, duly uh, uh, confirmed by the U.S. Senate, uh, overwhelmingly, um, and on whom he's with whom he's been having this this verbal debate about interest rates. And but he uses he refers to them both as an enemy of the United States, but then uh, with some back and forth on 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 responding to President Xi's increase in some tariffs against U.S. products, he says he's going to increase them even after he had suspended some other tariffs. But and- he already blinked. Donald Trump blinked the second that he said, you know what, we're not going to go with the September 1st tariff deadline. We're going to push it to December 15th. And to a lot of uh, foreign policy, particularly economic policy people, they said that that was Donald Trump's mistake. The Chinese took that as a blank, as weakness, and they capitalized on it. We don't know. You know, the, again, we've got this president who's un, who, who is unpredictable, proudly so. Is, is unpredictable good for national security? Unpredictable is... is in my in my historical judgment, is unpredictable not, good for economic not security? Not a good thing. But un, when unpredictable becomes the norm, which it has become, it doesn't have the same kind of effect as it would if you have somebody who's very consistent who suddenly changes his mind and surprises you, and then but, and, but and, we might and then well, you have reason to believe he he sticks with the new position. But we might as well elect Mr. Snuffleupagus as president because I mean it's going to have the same street cred as our current president in this. He, I mean, we, th- at some point we have to realize that. There's got to be an adult in the room that says, Mr. President, this is where I got to put my foot down. Well, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I, I, oh, I'm by the way, who I'm might the, be high? No, I, who's, who's the adult in the room? Who's the adult in the room who's going to say, Where's Mr. Larry President, Cudlow? you can't do this? Where's Larry Kudlow? You cannot tell me that Larry Kudlow is buying into all of this. Well, here's what happens with his his advisors. They do their best to advise him. They do their best to explain him. And then at some point, if they choose to think that he's a danger or a problem or they to the country, they, they have the choice of resigning with a blast, resigning quietly. Um, we've had a few people who, who uh, you know, he forces people out sometimes probably because they're continuing to push uh, push back on him for the sake of the country. They leave and they may or may not go out and tell but, all the stories. But, you know, we don't hear a lot from John Kelly, for example, who witnessed God knows what inside right. inside the White House. And he didn't come out with a with a with a tell all at the General beginning. General Mattis wrote a book, though. You know, yeah, That's I, coming out. Just, yeah. Go yeah, ahead, Rich Rubino. Go ahead, yeah, Rich Rubino. I had a fascinating conversation a couple of days ago with the businessman who's been, he basically comes there for the summer and he lives in Shanghai. He's been there for about 15 years. And I was asking about the trade war. And he said, essentially, the Chinese, but unlike any other president, they understand Trump. 
because the Chinese, he said, in terms of what they were trying to do, in terms of trying to, um, you know, whether it was pirating or whatever it was, he said they were trying to get away with stuff for a long time. And they understand Trump because the Chinese don't come at, don't come at problems from an ideological framework. They come at it from a transactional framework in terms of how they can make money off of this deal, and it's all about mo- it's all essentially monetary. It's not necessarily about it's not necessarily about state-sponsored c- communism or communism or capitalism. It's all about how you can make money. And in terms of other leaders, other leaders, for example, you know, Bill Clinton would, when he campaigned for president in '92, he talked about how we need to be tougher on China for human rights abu- human rights abuses. Uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama brought up the issue of Tibet. He said, in the case of Donald Trump, they know essentially what Donald Trump is all about. He's about money. Right, he's about business. Rich, he's not about human rights. Rich, Rich, when when you hear a businessman that deals in the Chinese economy talking about transactional, when I think of a transactional government, I think of the city of Chicago. I think of the city of Newark. Those are transactional. Yep. What, what we're dealing with with the Chinese is almost confrontational economics, uh, particularly with the fact that, and, and here's here's something else that, that really bugs me about all this, is, you know, we talk about the tariffs, we talk about, uh, you know, the manipulation of the Chinese currency, but Alan Moore, you know, the one item that they don't talk about, the one topic that seems almost taboo, it's like they don't want to jinx it, is the fact that if China wanted to dump even as little as 1% of the total debt load that they hold, that could cause economic chaos in us. No, it couldn't. You disagree. Yeah, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And you still believe that's not the case? How much much, uh, of uh, U.S. debt actually is held by China? It's the, the, the Chinese hold more than any other country, not by a lot over Japan, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a minority, all of it in total, of, 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 of the holders of U.S. debt. It's not insignificant, but it, it, so they sell a, a, a piece of theirs. We don't want them to do that. It can be disruptive, but they can't bring our economy to its knees by any stretch. And the extent to which they would sell at a loss their holdings, it would devalue the value of all the rest of their holdings. They're they're kind of stuck when you have with, central, with when, us. When you have central command of, I mean, we're accusing them of currency manipulation. If they dump it and manipulate the currency, there's no inherent loss on paper no, no, to no, China's no, 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 economy. You, you're wrong about how, that. How am I that, wrong on that, Justin? Here's how it works. I mean, it's it. it they're no different than anybody else. If they have invested a hundred billion dollars, which are real dollars, in U.S. debt, right, and that hundred billion suddenly becomes worth ninety billion, they're out ten billion dollars. If they and, cash out, if they cash out, yep, that means they say, look. We are we are calling the marker on, let's say, five hundred billion dollars in debt. Just so, and that's a tiny number. 
Five hundred billion dollars in debt. They don't call a marker. They sell their assets into the world market, they, and other people buy it at a deep discount and, because they think this is the sweetest deal we've seen in a long time. We just got a hundred billion dollars in promissory notes from the United States government for eighty that billion dollars. Can't the, that the government that our government can't meet? No, no, no. You don't understand. We borrow it. We borrow it from, from somebody else. If look, if the Chinese want to sell me a hundred Alan Moore a hundred billion dollars, I'll buy it for yeah. ten thousand dollars, and then I'll be holding a hundred billion dollars in promissory notes, if you will, from the United States government. That's worth a lot and, and, of money. And what, there's a market and, for and, and, all of there's that. There's a market for. But here's the thing: is if you go and like cash in your stock, you go to IBM and you say. I want the cash equivalent of this share of stock, and you go to the market and you sell it. No, no, you sell to the market. You don't go to IBM. You you go to the right. New York you sell Stock it to the, You sell it to the market for whatever is, anybody will give me. And, and if, you're saying, and if I flood the market with IBM stock because I want to bail out, I'm going to drive the price. I'm down. I'm going to drive the price down, but which hurts but, our which which no, it on, the, on it, the bond it doesn't. It doesn't. No, 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 no. It just means that. I mean, it it it's conceivable that suddenly. People became get, get, get nervous. Get nervous about the value of U.S. debt, it's, and it and it all declines but it's the in Lehman value. Brothers effect. It's the Lehman it's Brothers effect. It's not the Lehman Brothers effect. No, no, it is no, no, not hear me close out. No, 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 to no, the hear, Lehman. Hear me out. Don't even drop the words Lehman Brothers effect <laughs> because they're so not related to to this. They. You they, don't think there would be a run if China blows out even a small part of their debt load? Onto the open market, that's not going to cause a run on the bank to unload. It's, it's not going to lose confidence in that no, load. There's no bank that there's a run on. There's well, the there's, run on there's the market. Twenty two trillion dollars of U.S. debt. Much a huge portion is held by U.S. government entities, and then the biggest holders are U.S. Uh, individuals and institutions of all kinds, banks and universities and 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 the and, Chinese and, government and, and the companies. Russian government. No, no, and... no. I'm just saying where most of it is. Okay. And then you've got these governments, the Russians, they don't hold much at all. The Japanese hold used to always be number one. They're now number two behind China. Um, and and then governments all over the world. Why do they buy U.S. debt? Because it's the safest place in the world to put their assets. So even though the returns are very modest, there's a lot of uh, feeling around the world that they'd rather put it in the U.S. market for all of the uncertainties and volatility because when the alternative is everybody else that's selling debt, most countries migrate to the U.S. and still do. And if China insists on selling a bunch of its debt at a huge discount, right. there'd be a modest it, impact in the U.S., but it would right. not be anything big. It wouldn't bring us to our knees. So how long do you think that the U.S. can sustain a debt to this at this degree? 
at well, $22 trillion. Dollars. Th- well, it's it, it, and rising <laughs> at a trillion a year. <clears throat> right. That's a different issue. Yeah, it's a whole other show. That's the sh- that, that's, that's a whole other discussion that's the problem for another show. Deficits. Not to mention all the um, unfunded liabilities. It's the pre- yeah. it's the issue of it, it's the issue of deficit spending and long-term well, unfunded liabilities that no politician right. today is talking about Republican or Democrat. Hey, Eric, uh future show. We got to talk about maybe Mark that. Stanford. Yeah, uh Oh, yeah. Okay. That's true. Um, Bottom line, going back to China, the G7, and the economy, it was a – is there a coherent message on how we're dealing with the Chinese trade issue right now? No. I I think Rich was dead on correct when he talked about how the the Chinese kind of understand our president because for them, it's transactional. It's we want to get a deal. We want to, if we have to steal intellectual property. This is the first time we dealt with a transactional president to this extent well but and and with this level of ignorance i mean oh, it, it, it'd be one thing if if you had a guy that was that was really was a genius financially and and transactional one. this unstable that's right <laughs> but but this guy thinks that that if you have a trade deficit of a certain size with another country then you're then somebody's taking advantage of you um and and that's the that's the first problem and then in this particular case and we've been over this before China has been a bad actor in a whole host of ways, even though, you know, America benefits a lot from cheap stuff from China. Uh, the American consumer does. But but the, the the fact of the matter is they have they have they have done a lot of things, particularly in intellectual property right. and forcing deals to be made with large uh, manufacturers. And the, the U.S. government basically look, look, looked the other way. And we and we sold. It wasn't right, all stolen. But, we sold intellectual property right. uh, for, for it, deep, deep discounts. Well, not so much for the, the the deep discounts is that that we we wanted we we were it was it was Boeing versus Airbus to build uh, the fleet for to, to build commercial airplanes uh, or pieces of them in China and we thought our our guys you know Boeing made the deals and and the U.S. government approved in some cases these these kinds of deals. Also, remember so, that China so was also buying large fleets for. Uh, uh, China Pacific, absolutely. Air China. So it's like, who can right. we get the best deal? Other countries do that too, but they weren't they weren't they weren't as transactional as the Chinese, correct? As we were. So correct. so you got you got a president who says, "I'm going to increase tariffs," and they say, "Don't do it," and then we then they respond. Richard Bino, thirty yeah, seconds. Go ahead. Just going to say, I actually think the last transactional president to this extent, well, not to this extent, but maybe a step below, is probably Nixon. Nixon didn't really have an ideological foundation either. In terms of he was willing to meet with Mao with Mao Zedong, you know, um, despite all of it, despite the fact that he probably killed more people in the century than any other leader, and he was willing to do it not for an ideological reason, but simply because he was thinking of how he was thinking of how this would affect the West if you could get the Chinese and the Soviets, despite the fact that their ideology is similar, that they would have different interests. So he'd be looked at as kind of a real politique thing. Um, so I think that's the only president I think that was triply transactional as opposed to ideological, and you know both most most, most presidents I think are kind of a little right. kind of amalgamation right. of the two. So you got ten I, seconds, Alan Moore, real quick. Rich, I think, just slandered Stalin, who I think was a bigger, <laughs> a bigger murderer. <laughs> that's a debate. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, good show. Good talk, as always. Uh, on behalf of Alan Moore, Rich Rubino, Eric, the producer, uh, Rob, the engineer, who looks awful a lot like Charlie Bernie, the engineer now. Uh, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. By the way, you can check us out on all of your major podcast services. 
Eric, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio now. We're kind of a big deal. You can get us on everything now. Uh, you can also listen to us live on our Twitter feed. You can also listen to us live on our uh, Backroom Politics website. Uh, also, download us as a podcast from Backroom Politics. Check out the latest news from there. Facebook, uh, you can just do it all. Anyways, have a great week, America. We'll see you. Bye-bye.